Welcome to the Soma Church Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope what you hear fills your heart with hope and purpose. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share it with friends. Here's today's message. Can your enemies get close enough to kiss you? I read a bunch of leadership books and I've read a bunch in the past and love leadership teaching. There's not a single book that I've ever read in my life that encourages you to let somebody who is a mistrust or somebody that doesn't deserve trust get close enough to kiss you. In fact, most of those books are going to talk to you about a culture of trust in your organization to make sure that those kind of people who you cannot trust, those kind of people who are unreliable, do not take a position of authority in your ministry. Now, the the reason I ask this question is for the obvious reason, is because Jesus, I believe, is the greatest leader of all time, and not only the Son of God, but a great leader. And Jesus flies in the face of all of these leader gurus who tell you uh, what good leadership looks like because there's not a single one of them that would say, promote the guy that's stealing money from you to treasurer. There's not a single one that would say the guy that is going to ultimately uh, try to facilitate your death, make him one of your closest disciples. Uh, Put that guy right next to you. Send him out to go do ministry. But that is exactly what Jesus did. And so we're all familiar probably with the Judas kiss, the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus knows, of course, because he is God, but he also says in multiple different ways that Jesus knew in advance what was going to take place. In fact, it even says at the, the Lord's Supper, Jesus looks to Judas and says, go do what you must do. And of course he leaves and then he goes get that, he gets that silver and then he comes back with guards and he says, the man that I kiss, that's the one that you need to apprehend. That's the Jesus that you guys are after. So when I kiss him, go grab him and arrest him. And so Jesus and Judas meet in the garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes up and does the customary greeting of, of kissing Jesus on the side of the cheek. And of course, then at that moment, they apprehend, arrest Jesus and they lead him on his way to what will eventually lead him to being crucified. And the whole time, Jesus knew that that's exactly what was going to happen. So I ask you again, can your enemies get close enough to kiss you? Or are you such a fighter that the first thing you would do when your enemies come close to you is punch them before you'd ever let them kiss you on the cheek? Today, I want to challenge you to look at your enemies differently. Today, I wanted to start with that clip from Les Miserables because that story is all about two things. A society that is either based upon just law or grace. Now, we have to have both. But a society that is based just upon justice and just based upon law would never allow for that priest to look at that man who punched him in the the eye the night before, stole from him to say, hey, you forgot a couple things. Go take more and then go sell it and turn your life around. See, If we don't have grace in our society, if we don't have love, if we don't have forgiveness in our society, even for those who would mean us harm, then we will fall prey to that old parable, an eye for an eye, and the world will go blind. See, it's in our culture today. You guys watch the news. It's hard to avoid. The left and the right are at each other's throat constantly. Every, I mean, it really does seem like this, and it probably literally is like this in our current presidency. There's a new scandal every single week or a new attack that is lobbed at our president every single week, all right? Justified or not, 
But the reality is, is that between social media, cancel culture, and, and outrage culture, and all the things that you hear about so very often in our society today, I'm surprised that we aren't getting closer and closer to being at each other's throats. Today, we find that it's very often that the, the, way to, uh, the way to truly deal with people that you disagree with is to make them your enemies and to try to lob insults at them so that you don't have to contend with what they're actually saying. And so the question I have for each and every one of you guys is this, and this is what is portrayed in Les Miserables. Will, will the world end in bloodshed? in us fighting one another, in us hating one another, or will we take the route of Jesus and will we allow our enemies to be people that we love? The people who come against us, the people who speak against us, the people who gossip against us, the people who hurt us physically, emotionally, spiritually, will we be Jesus to the world? This is the second question because this kind of helps us illustrate the point. Raise your hand. Now I want you to do this. Raise your hand if you've ever dealt with a difficult person in your life. Raise your hand. All right. Honey, you're not supposed to raise your hand. Sorry. Let's do that again. I'm just kidding. All right. So everybody up in this place pretty much, as far as I can tell. Raise your hand if you are a difficult person. Wow. Way more hands than I thought. Okay. So because I was going to say, usually the hands go down a lot more when, when we ask that question. But, but, but Jesus was a master at dealing with difficult people. So let's go to Matthew 5 and let's see what Jesus said about his enemies. And then I have a question for you. And it says this, you have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here's the teaching of Jesus. Love your enemies. This is what Christ called us to do. This is the command of God, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Who's doing that up in this place? You don't have to raise your hand. But, but this is what he said. And so the first question maybe you have about this verse of Scripture is just simply this. Do I have enemies? I'm a pretty good person. I try to live a good life. You know, I try to, try to do the, the right thing for the most part, the best I can. I don't really have any enemies. Read up. Maybe you even say, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. I uh, don't even take the best parking place. I let somebody else take that place just because I defer my, to my brother. Um, I'm a pretty good person. Do I, do I have enemies? And here's what I'd say to you, is that if you don't have enemies, well, then you must ask yourself the question, who are you making friends with? Because the scripture is really clear on this issue. Let me show you a couple scripture verses. In 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone. Now listen to this. In fact, everyone. So here's the truth. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if, in other words, you don't have enemies, is it because you're making friends with the wrong people? How about this? Matthew 10.22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. By virtue of being a Christian, you are deciding to live a countercultural life that will, by virtue of that, truly not make you friends with people who love the world and the things of the world and who want to live a non-Christian life. Your mere existence flies in the face of those who desire to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it because they become their own God. You may say, well, I'm just a super nice person. That's why I don't have any enemies. Have you compromised is the question I would ask, and that's why you don't have enemies. Have you compromised what it truly means to be a Christian and you don't stand for anything? And that's why you don't have enemies. Because by virtue of standing for what is right, you will often find yourself at ends with those who do not. 
But perhaps maybe another question to put it this way is, is maybe it's a little softer than that. Maybe you haven't bought into the idea that Jesus has not called you just to be a part of the culture. So there's three things you can do, according to a guy named Andy Crouch, who wrote a great book about culture making. And Christians have fallen into this trap for a long time. You can fight the culture. You can be like, oh, that's secular music or all oh, uh, those TV shows. And, 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 and perhaps in some ways you should do that. But, but you can fall into the trap of just being an enemy of the culture. Very often today where we're at in Christianity, boy, and this is powerful. Very often today we fall into this second trap. We mimic the culture. We're so in love with the culture that we just think to ourselves in the church, pastors fall into this trap a lot. If I can just make my church worldly enough, cool enough, awesome enough, get enough of the right light shows, get enough of the right special guests, get Kanye up in this place, we will draw crowds of people. If we can just be enough like the culture, boy, we will make a difference. And then there's the third thing. And this is what Jesus has called us to. And this is the holy calling of Christians. It's to, it's to not just hate the culture or not just to mimic the culture, but to create culture. To think differently. To do things differently. To do things boldly. I, I submit to you today that that is the call of every single Christian that's up in this place today. That God hasn't called you to just be a part of the culture. He hasn't called you to fight against the culture. He's called you to change the culture and to make new culture. That's who God's, that's who God is in you. That's what God's called you to do. So do you have enemies? I guess you can put it this way. You better hope so. So if you do have enemies, then the question comes this way. What do we do? How do we love them? If by chance we find ourselves with an enemy in our life, how can we follow the scripture and love that person? So here's what Jesus taught. And again, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 5 when he says, love your enemies. We're going to go a little bit before the first verse of scripture I read. And I'm going to show you what Jesus said about people who might be your enemy. And this is what he says. For you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, I want to stay here for a minute because I grew up in the dirty south. I grew up in Florida and I lived on the beach, but it was a very rural community in which I grew up with. And, and uh, I, I have heard people talk about this verse of scripture because this is challenging, right? If somebody slaps you on the face, give them your other cheek. And this is what people in the town that I grew up in, they would say, well, it doesn't say what to do after that. So they slap you in one cheek and you give them the other one and they slap you the other cheek. Well, it doesn't say what to do after that because then you can punch them right in the face. That's what they say. Only be careful to discern what this says, especially for some of you men who think to yourself, ain't no dude going to ever slap me in my face. And then some of you ladies are a little bit feisty and you're like, oh, take those nails off and take those eyelashes off and we going downtown, Charlie Brown. Um, you ain't going to slap me in my face. I want to be careful to understand what he's saying here. Now listen, it, it doesn't say if you chop off my arm, give you the, the other arm to chop. It doesn't say if you, if you molest one of my children, give you the other child. It's very careful what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying here is that to do something that back then and even today would be an insulting thing, not necessarily a thing that would cause injury, but a matter of pride. If somebody hurts your pride, they slap you in the face. Be godly enough to say, you know what? You can keep on slapping me because I'm not putting myself first. Boy, come on. I'm going to tell you, to be a Christian, 
It's one of the hardest things on the planet to do if you do it right. Because, because what you're saying by virtue of being a Christian and what you're saying by virtue of following this scripture verse is this, is that I am second and Jesus is first. Everything within me that wants to strike back says no to the goodness of God and to the glory of God over my life who is the king of my life and says, I'm on the throne, not you, Reed. If Reed's on the throne, you strike back. And what happens if we end up that way? It's a question that Jesus will answer here in a minute. And if anyone wants to sue you, now here's a big one. Take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. Again, Jesus is giving this exhortation saying this. Um, do yourself a favor. Don't drag this thing out in court. Don't, don't become litigious. Well, I'm just going to sue you if you do such and such. Can you be insulted, be offended, taken on the cheek, and not have to strike back? That's the point. So if you don't strike back with your fist, you say, nah, you know what I will do? I'll strike back with my rights because me, hashtag me, I'm not going to let you do this. Now, is it saying that like if somebody tries to steal your car that you don't try to get it back? No. The point here is this, and it says shirt. If somebody takes your shirt, give them your coat. Now, I'll be honest with you, according to the scripture verse, back then, clothes... You didn't go to TJ Maxx, bros, sisters. You didn't go to Walmart to go grab your clothes. Clothes were very important because very few, of the, few people had multiple sets of clothes. So this is a valuable thing to them. But I wouldn't say, it, he also doesn't say, take your house, hand over your coat as well. So it's not an injunction of defending yourself, but it is an injunction of placing yourself in your pride, in your feelings, above your actions. Come on. If you're not writing notes, I'm sorry for you right there because that was powerful. You even should have said amen. But there's going to be other opportunities. Don't worry. Are your feelings on the throne? Or is Jesus on the throne? All right. There's 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, I love this one. And you guys have probably heard me say this if you've heard me preach more than once. Um, I love this picture because here's the idea. Back then, in those days, the Romans were the captors, if you will, um, the owners of, of Judea, and they were the uh, dictators, probably, if you want to call it that. They weren't uh, completely evil and vile consistently all the time, but they were the people who were the conquerors of that land, and by virtue of conquering the land, they became the leaders of that land. And so, um, very different than what we have here today. And one of the rules that they put in place um, in this time was this, is that now that you're a subject of Rome and now that uh, you have the military force of one of the most powerful militaries on the planet at that point in time, we're going to force you to do some things because we're, uh, because we're protecting you and we're offering you services. Um, in many ways, Rome was a very um, domesticated force because they didn't go in and just slaughter and kill everybody. What they offered was to come in and they conquered, of course, but then they said, but now we're going to rule over you, but we'll protect you. So one of the things that they said was this, is that if a soldier is coming home and that soldier comes to a citizen and says, carry my stuff, you are obligated by law to carry that Roman soldier's stuff because they're defending you. You're obligated by law to carry that soldier's stuff for at least one mile. So, so there's the law. 
that they were supposed to. So the Jews who were the subjects of the Romans at this point in time, and Jesus is talking to Jews, and, and, and I can see almost in my head this, this picture of, of um, coming to Jesus and saying to him, hey, we, we've heard about this, the, this law, and I'm sure you've heard about it too, Jesus, how these, these captors, these conquerors of ours are forcing us to walk with them. They're making us go one mile. And we know you're a man of justice. We know you're a man that stands up for what is right. Tell us what we should do. How, how do we fight back against these oppressors? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what to do. And I'm sure the crowd's going mad and they're saying, yeah, tell us what to do. How can we fight back? How can we supplant our conquerors? This is very, this is very different for us as Americans because we were founded on a revolutionary war. And so we think to ourselves, you know what you do with your oppressors? You shoot him between the eyes. Um, and I don't know, let me be very clear, thank God for the Revolutionary War and thank God for the founding of our nation. But, but somehow those two things in our head have to, have to come together based upon what Jesus says here. And so they say, what do we say, Jesus? What do, you, what do we do, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what to do. The next time one of those Romans comes to you and says, walk with me a mile. Now put yourself in their shoes here. Don't let this just be Sunday school. Somebody, stranger, comes to you and says, take my stuff and walk a mile. What are you doing? How are you feeling at that moment? And Jesus says, this is what you say the next time they tell you to go a mile with them. Tell them, I will not go one mile with you. Yeah, you tell them, Jesus. I'll go with you too. What? Two? Because I'm not just going to do what I'm told. I'm not just going to give you just enough and be nice just as much as I have to be. I'm going to go the extra mile because that's what Christians do. Give to the ones who ask you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So the idea from everything that we get here is just simply this. How do you love your enemies? You give them what they do not deserve. Namely, unconditional forgiveness and even beyond that. Now, I don't want to unpack that too much, to be honest with you, because I don't want to take the time to do it. Let's just leave that at face value, if that's okay. So what do we give our enemies? How do we love our enemies? The best way to love your enemies is to give them what they do not deserve, namely, unconditional forgiveness. So now the, the stakes are getting a little bit higher. Because now, here's a limiting principle. The person who, who molested your child... They call you and, you and they ask you for forgiveness. What do you say? And the answer better be every single time. Yes, I forgive you. Um, so the stakes are getting a little bit higher here. Because the reality is, is that unconditional forgiveness is not a part of our nature, right? This is what we say all the time. Oh, I love them, but I don't have to like them. Right? That's what we think unconditional forgiveness is. But of course... I, I, and, and maybe that's true, and I understand you're not going to be friends with everybody. But, but the reality is I can't help but wonder if that sentiment is not just our way of trying to say, I still hate them because of who they are, but I'm forced to love them because the Bible tells me I got to, which is not really Christianity. All right, and then we think to ourselves, well, yeah, I'll forgive them. Unconditional forgiveness, fine, if they apologize. Now, unconditional forgiveness, this is what we're talking about here. This is the sum total of all of this stuff, is, is we give them what they do not deserve. And do you know why, guys? 
Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we take a page page from the playbook of our Savior and we say, you know what? Jesus loved me when I was fighting against him. Jesus loved me when I was hateful. Jesus loved me when I was sinful. Jesus loved me when I deserved nothing but hell. And he loved me anyway. And so we learn from our Savior the true definition of what it truly means to be a Christian. To live by grace, which of course is unmerited favor. I want to pack that a little bit more in just a moment. But here's the idea, is that we give them namely unconditional forgiveness. There's people in your life who you should have forgiven before they even asked you for forgiveness. There's people in your life right now that if you're holding resentment, we talked a while back about church hurt. There's people, if, if there's anybody still in your life who, who's hurt you in the past, who's bothered you in the past, who's, who's wrecked your, your, your spiritual walk in the past, whatever you past, whatever you want to say about that, those people, whether they ever come to you and ask you for forgiveness, should have been forgiven. Now, I'd love to say the moment that it happened, but often that's not the case with us. But the reality is that that's the kind of love, that's the kind of love that we need to sow into other people. Now, the reason I I present this to you guys this morning is because because it's quite frankly impossible. It's totally impossible. So maybe the question is not really, how do I love them? Because this is kind of what we do. This is my summation of what Jesus is talking about. They deserve up to and beyond unconditional forgiveness. But maybe the question is, is how in the world do I have the power to actually do this? How can I truly forgive the people who have hurt me the most? And maybe you're even thinking of somebody right now in your head that's hurt you. And you, you want to ask that question of yourself. How can I actually do this? How can I have the power to do this? And this is why what we're talking about here is a quintessential, and this is why I was so pumped about speaking to you guys today. This is a quintessential aspect of Christian living. This is the epitome of the gospel, what we're talking about today. This is grace. So let me show you this scripture verse, because Jesus kind of alludes to the fact of the impossibility of this. So I think this is like uh, Matthew 5, 47 through 46. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father. Now there's a key. By doing this, you show that you're a child of of your father, who is a lover of sinners while they were still in their sin. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? In other words, if you only love the people who are just like you or the people that you hang out with, what, what are you doing more than anybody else? And then he even goes further, further than that and says, do not even the pagans do that. People who have no belief system whatsoever. And then he says the key, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I believe here's the idea in context, because again, this is all from Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaching this stuff in one message, and then he says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you know the way to be perfect? To love your enemies. If you can do that, by virtue of that, you exhibit that there is an inner work inside of you that is supernatural. Because I don't believe you do that on your own. I don't believe you get there just by trying hard enough. Listen to me. The earmark of the Christian faith 
the evidence that you are truly a Christian, that your life has been changed, is not that you go to church. Thousands of other religions do that. It is not that you read Holy Scripture. Thousands of other religions do that. The true earmark, the true evidence of Christian faith is not that you pray. Thousands of other religions do that. I was behind a dude at Walmart the other day. He looked like an imam or something from the Muslim religion. And, um, and he was praying the whole time that he was in line. Uh, he, he, he stopped praying, I think, once maybe to say something to the cash register and then prayed the whole time, mumbling prayers under his breath. Prays more than I do, probably more than you do too. See, that's not the earmark of the Christian faith. The earmark of the Christian faith that God truly is living inside of you, has supernaturally changed your life, is that you have the ability to do what is only possible with the power of God. The impossible. The earmark of the Christian faith, and write this down, the earmark of the Christian faith is the impossible. And I'm not only talking about miracles. I'm talking about, I'm talking about forgiving and loving your enemies. That's impossible without God. It's impossible without God. To truly extend the kind of grace that I'm talking about here today is truly impossible without God. And Jesus sums it up this way in the, in the Lord's teaching on prayer. He says this, if you do not forgive others, you yourself will not be forgiven. Now, that flies in the face of some of our theology right now because we say, oh, well, you can't do anything to be saved. And Jesus is right there saying, like, you have to forgive people, and then that's how you're saved. So, so how does that work? But this is what Jesus is saying, is that unforgiveness is the cardinal sin because, and by the way, I think it does have something to do with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, unforgiveness is the cardinal sin because by virtue of you not forgiving others who do you wrong, you show that God has not gotten a hold of your heart. Because did, for God to get a hold of your heart, you know how little you deserved grace, and God gave it to you anyway. And so the Christian faith is a recognition of the fallenness of man and the goodness of God. So much so that you realize you cannot improve upon what Jesus did when he went to the cross. And the best that you can do when people hurt you, when people malign you, mischaracterize you, and misunderstand you, is to love them in the face of that. Let me show this to you in Scripture. Because, because Jesus is, is well known for this saying when he goes to the cross. This is uh, Luke 23, uh, 24, I believe. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And, right, and I love this too. At the end of that verse, it says, <clears throat> they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Now let's be honest, guys. Somebody's nailing Nails in your hands, in your feet. They just got done spitting in your face, mocking you, punching you in the face, whipping you on the back. And in that moment, is this what you say to them? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. No. If you're me, and most of you are like, no thanks, but if you're you, you know what you say at that moment? Father, get them because they know exactly what they're doing. Get them, God. Justice. But not Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Now, here's this beautiful thing. It's later on, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus will send out his disciples. His disciples will start winning people to Christ, and they will become Christians. And one of them will be a guy named Stephen. Stephen will go out preaching one day, and then Stephen will be stoned. And this is what Stephen says. Because there's something supernatural going on in his life. 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In other words, God, I'm dying. Take me to heaven. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he raised, when he had said this, he died. Now, in some versions, it says he fell asleep, which probably means that he became unconscious and then eventually died from his wounds of being stoned by these men. But essentially, he died in that moment. And right before his death, just like his Savior, he says what Jesus said. Lord, don't hold this against them. How does that happen, guys? Except a supernatural God lives inside of you and he's changed your nature. So this is what I want to say going back to grace. Because I want to explain grace a little bit more. But grace is unmerited favor. It's a great definition. It means that you did not deserve it. It's what Jesus gave to us when we were enemies. And it's what Jesus is calling us to give to the world. Grace, unmerited favor. Right? That's the definition of grace. And grace is what we are called to give to each and every person whom we might consider an enemy. But grace is a supernatural repercussion of a supernatural God living in your life. Grace is the evidence of a Christian life. Do you have the capacity to give to others what they do not deserve? Alexander Pope said it this way, to err is human, to forgive is divine. So this is what I'll say in closing. The inner witness that your life has truly been changed is that you have the capacity to give grace, even to your enemies. The outward witness that the world desperately needs to see more so than ever before in our society is a group of Christians on fire for the Lord who are extending grace to others. And it's what the world desperately needs. That's the outer witness that the world desperately needs to know that there is something more to this Jesus than a Sunday morning routine, than which church you go to, whether or not the music is good, or whether or not the child care is top-notch. None of that matters to an unsaved world that will chew itself up and spit itself out without Christians extending grace to a world in need. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. For more messages like this one, please check out our channel for past episodes. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing and sharing with friends. For more info about Soma Church, please go to soma-church.com. We love you and we can't wait to meet you in person.